0: Vitamin with one of the richest historical stories today is getting a lot of attention because of its potential impact on longevity and also its controversial impact on heart disease. Tune in to find out the details only here on the People Scientist podcast. are listening to The People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on nutrition, health, and medicine. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caliguri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hi, People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 38, where every week I arm you with some scientific evidence so we can all lead the healthy lives we want to live. I have to apologize in advance because I am suffering with a cold today, and I may sound a little bit more nasally than I usually do, but the good thing is if I sneeze or cough while I'm recording this, I can luckily edit that out so you don't have to hear it. Uh, but nevertheless on today's episode we are continuing our vitamin mini series i've gotten a lot of great feedback on these vitamin mini series so thank you for letting me know that you're enjoying them and all the little tidbits of information that i share people seem to like them for example everyone's favorite thing that they learned on the last vitamin mini series episode is that the reason why our urine turns bright fluorescent yellow after taking a multivitamin is because of the excess riboflavin that our body does not utilize, gets excreted into our urine, and riboflavin itself is brightly yellow fluorescent. But today, I also have some great tidbits of information on our next vitamin, which is vitamin B3, otherwise called niacin. So as we always do, how about we start off with some core takeaways. Niacin is a really interesting vitamin that has a lot more research conducted on it than the previous B vitamins that I mentioned before. Niacin has a rich history in that it took decades for scientists to prove that pellagra, a condition that plagued the southern United States for years, was because of a niacin deficiency and not an infectious disease. Today, a severe niacin deficiency is far less common and is most commonly seen in individuals living with alcohol abuse, those on very restrictive diets, those with anorexia nervosa, or those with malabsorption conditions such as uncontrolled Crohn's disease. However, the concept of suboptimal intake or a mild deficiency and the long-term impact on longevity and health is always of interest in regard to vitamins. While niacin has been investigated in the context of heart health, schizophrenia, skin health, migraines, longevity, and more. I think that many claims have been made about niacin, but the results of some of these trials are a bit controversial and may not be what we thought. Overall, niacin appears to improve cholesterol levels, but unfortunately does not improve the risk of heart disease or death. Niacin supplementation may benefit skin hydration and the appearance of aged skin and niacin is interestingly being investigated today very popularly for its role in longevity and successful aging. Now let's get into those details. The discovery of niacin as a vitamin has a very interesting history. Castle in 1735 first described the niacin-deficient condition that was later coined as pellagra, and how it seemed to be associated with a diet consisting mainly of corn. Pellagra is translated into meaning raw skin. The first symptom of this condition, of a severe niacin deficiency, includes sun-sensitive skin that results in darkly pigmented, dry, scaly rashes. Further symptoms are included in changes in the digestive tract, that can also induce vomiting, constipation, or diarrhea, a bright red tongue, and neurological symptoms including depression, apathy, which is a loss of interest or concern, headaches, fatigue, confusion, and loss of memory. Pellagra was common in the United States and parts of Europe in the early 20th century, in areas in which corn was the dietary staple, which is quite low in niacin. Now, after four to five years of a niacin deficiency starting, without any intervention, mortality or death is likely to occur. In the United States in the early 1900s, the mortality rate was 33%. In the United States and other first world countries, pellagra is most often seen in those with alcohol abuse and has been reported as a complication of bariatric surgery, which is, for example... a surgery in which they minimize the size of the stomach to induce weight loss. This deficiency has also been seen in anorexia nervosa and malabsorptive diseases such as Crohn's and colitis. Now, Sidden Stricker in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 1958 wrote a great review on the history of niacin's discovery. In 1906, CRC reported an epidemic among the inmates of the Alabama State Asylum and how many of them had severe skin issues and were delirious. Now, because this impacted individuals that were living in an asylum, unfortunately, it did not gain a lot of attention yet. But it was only until the next year in 1907 that pellagra had become a major health problem, affecting tens of thousands of individuals in the southeast United States. During this period of time, physicians and government officials believed very strongly that this condition of pellagra was infectious in nature, like other bacterial born plagues. Because at the same time, in the other side of the coast, in the southwestern United States, the bubonic plague had killed thousands of people. While in the southeast, tens of thousands of people were dying from pellagra. One popular hypothesis that was this infectious agent was carried in food or was thought to be carried by bugs such as gnats. From 1912 to 1916, doctors worked tirelessly, testing whether or not the disease pellagra was infectious. It was not until 1912 when the famous scientist Casimir Funk claimed that pellagra was due to a deficiency of a vitamin in the diet, not from bacteria. But this idea was rejected by many. In order for some scientists to prove that pellagra was not infectious, but rather because of a nutrient deficiency, they went to some great lengths. Now if you are a little bit squeamish, then I would suggest skipping ahead 30 seconds from here. I'll give you a couple of seconds to do that. But just for the scientist Goldberger to prove to doctors that pellagra was not infectious, but rather a nutrient deficiency, he and others on his team went to the hospital to see some patients with pellagra and took samples from them. The scientists ate the shedded skin of the patients and injected themselves with the blood of the patients with pellagra. And when the scientists did not become ill with pellagra, they proved to others that it was not infectious. But there still was doubt in some minds so the scientists took it one step further. In 1915, the scientists recruited a group of inmates at a local jail to agree to undergo a study where they would eat the same diet of the individuals in the area living who had pellagra in return for an earlier pardon from their jail sentence. Their diet consisted of cornmeal, grits, corn starch, wheat flour, rice, cane syrup, sugar, sweet potatoes a small amount of turnip greens, cabbage, collards, and a liberal portion of pork fat. So it was also very low in protein, which is key here as well, because eating the amino acid tryptophan can alleviate symptoms of a niacin deficiency. But after six months of the inmates eating this type of diet, which was typical to that area, all the men developed pellagra. This further proved the scientist's point. However, even though the scientists convinced some people that pellagra was due to the diet being deficient, the ability to prevent pellagra with food was never practical because of economic conditions in certain areas, as well as stubborn food habits from some of the people. The mortality rate of those with pellagra was 33%, so it was still a big issue in the southeastern United States. It was not until 1937 where niacin was finally discovered from animal liver, and niacin could be isolated from the liver to treat pellagra. This quote-unquote anti-pellagra vitamin was discovered by Elvham, Madden, Strong, and Woolley. Their discovery was applied immediately to human pellagra, wherever the disease was being studied, and the results were very dramatic because they were able to take niacin, and inject it intravenously so that the patient's symptoms could be reverted very quickly. But just thinking about that in the context, isn't that crazy that, you know, just 70 to 100 years ago, we didn't even know that many of these vitamins existed. And people were dying, you know, by the thousands because they didn't have that vitamin in their food supply. I mean, now today we can go to the store and get a multivitamin and this type of thing is not even a concern. Like, if this was an actual plague because people didn't even know this vitamin existed. Can you think that in a 70, 70 to 100 years, what we will be thinking? You know, what are we missing today that in 70 to 100 years, they're gonna think it's ridiculous that we didn't know this existed and that this could cure a disease that unfortunately was afflicting thousands of people? It just boggles my mind how far we have come in nutritional science. in the last handful of decades. So today as a result, severe niacin deficiency is is far less common, because there are a wide variety of foods that are available to us, as well as vitamin supplements. So as a result, because severe niacin deficiency isn't as much of a concern, a lot of scientists have been actually looking at suboptimal niacin as more of a concern, meaning that the more obvious symptoms of deficiency are not seen, but perhaps an increased risk of chronic disease could be a consequence of suboptimal intake. So for us to understand this, we must first know the function of niacin. Well, niacin, the vitamin B3, is the precursor to the very important signaling molecule nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, or abbreviated NAD. Now, NAD is a cofactor that is central to the metabolism and is necessary for hundreds of important pathways in our body. David Sinclair, who is a proponent of NAD in longevity and health, wrote in the journal Cell Metabolism last year that NAD controls hundreds of key processes from energy metabolism to cell survival, rising and falling depending on our food intake, exercise levels, and even the time of day. NAD levels steadily decline with age, unfortunately resulting in altered metabolism and increased disease susceptibility. Therefore, niacin can potentially play an important role in longevity and successful aging. Restoring NAD levels in old or animals that are living with disease can promote health and extend their lifespan. So this prompts a search for safe and effective ways to boost NAD molecules and how this may make us more resilient and have an increased ability for longevity and successful aging. Now, because the B vitamin niacin can be converted to NAD, it has received a lot of interest. Well, homeostatic levels of NAD can be achieved by ingesting 15 milligrams of niacin daily. However, as levels decline with age, the question is how much do we need to ingest And what form of niacin is best, because there are many forms of niacin in the diet. Well, Jackson in 1995 in the Journal of Nutrition noted that adding specifically the forms nicotinamide or nicotinic acid to the diet of rats did increase levels of NAD in their organs and blood. Kirkland in the journal Current Pharmaceutical Design in 2009 wrote a great review on niacin status in people and how this relates to NAD metabolism, function, and health and disease. A niacin-deficient diet can reduce levels of NAD in the blood by 60%, so we do know that if someone's not getting enough niacin, this will impact their NAD and, and perhaps, therefore, their metabolism and all the pathways that are involved. Supplementation of niacin in the diet can increase NAD levels even after less than a week. However, interestingly, very high supplementation is not necessarily warranted. It was noted in a RAT study that high doses of niacin did increase NAD levels in the bone marrow after one week, but the NAD levels dropped to similar levels as baseline before the supplementation. The reason for this downregulation is not really clearly understood. So it appears that niacin supplementation can increase NAD, but it drops after a while. Trammell in the journal Nature Communications in 2016 reported in rodents and in 12 humans that specifically the form nicotinamide riboside may be a very good form of niacin to ingest because it can significantly raise NAD levels in the blood. They found that specifically 1,000 milligrams of nicotinamide riboside was the most effective at raising NAD levels. Amounts of nicotinamide riboside in foods is not well known because the ability to measure it in foods is not yet set up very clearly yet. But what they do know is that dairy milk and yeast are thought to contain some amounts of nicotinamide riboside. Other ways to increase NAD actually include calorie restriction or intermittent fasting. The amino acid tryptophan can also increase NAD. And, of course, dietary niacin that I had mentioned before all seem to have beneficial impacts on our NAD levels. So we can raise our NAD levels by other healthful means as well, not just by eating niacin-rich foods. Now, besides longevity, niacin has been linked to dementia and Alzheimer's. Gong in 2013 added nicotinamide riboside to the diet of mice mimicking Alzheimer's and found some beneficial effects to their cognition, and levels of beta amyloid in the brain. Amanulla in the journal Clinical Neuropsychiatry in 2010 reported that in the 1980s, 20% of cases of dementia were reversible with proper B vitamin intake. Late stages of niacin deficiency, as well as with other B vitamin deficiencies, can result in symptoms that mimic dementia, such as confusion, depression, memory loss, and psychosis. And these symptoms were reversible when proper niacin and B vitamin intake was initiated. Morris, in 2004, in the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry reported that intakes above 15 mg a day of niacin in the diet were associated with a lower risk for developing dementia. Niacin has also been studied in the context of schizophrenia. Mesomore in 2018 in the journal Prostaglandins, Leukotrienes, and Essential Fatty Acids reported that when forms of niacin are applied to the skin, it results in a flushing or redness. In individuals with schizophrenia, an abnormal skin niacin flush appears to be a specific endotype. Many scientists prior to Mesamore reported how this simple test could be used to help diagnose schizophrenia in decades past. Natalyn and colleagues in 2010 reviewed very nicely how when niacin is applied to the skin, it can induce prostaglandin synthesis from the fats in our skin cell membranes. Niacin causes the blood vessels to dilate in the skin and for the skin to flush and turn red and warm. In individuals with schizophrenia, this response is absent or minimized. Now they test this by using a very specific form of niacin. So not all forms of niacin will induce the skin flush, This specific one was tested by Ward and colleagues in 1998. They had introduced the local application of methyl nicotinate, a specific skin permeable ester of nicotinic acid for this so-called niacin skin flush test. Now they would apply 0.01 moles or 0.1 molar for five minutes for a week and strong response respectively. However, experts say that the niacin skin flush test should not necessarily be looked at as a way to diagnose schizophrenia anymore. It could have been useful back then, but not anymore. But rather, this skin-flesh test can give us insight into the cause and etiology of schizophrenia. They predict that fatty acids and prostaglandins are at the root of this, so right now a lot of investigation is around fat metabolism and oxylipid metabolism and how this may relate to the cause of schizophrenia. And maybe perhaps one day, if we understand the cause better, then we can provide better treatment strategies. Niacin has also been studied in the context of heart disease. And this is where the clinical data becomes a little bit controversial. Now, high doses of niacin have been tested many times in the last several decades for their ability to improve blood cholesterol profiles. Many clinical trials have investigated the heart health effect of very high dose niacin supplementation in the two to three gram range. Now keep in mind, the tolerable upper intake level that is recommended that we do not exceed is 35 milligrams a day. So the dose that they are studying here in these clinical trials is almost 100 times that tolerable upper intake level. Nevertheless, niacin supplementation in the range Of 2 to 3 grams a day appeared to significantly raise the good HDL cholesterol and lowers the LDL cholesterol and triglycerides quite significantly. Now, this would be thought, therefore, to significantly reduce the risk of heart disease. However, in a landmark clinical trial published by the AIM High investigators in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011, they had recruited 3,414 patients currently on statins to lower their cholesterol. Now, all the patients remained on their statins, but half received extended-release niacin, 1,500 to 2,000 milligrams per day, and the other half ate matching placebo. Great improvements were noted in their HDL, LDL cholesterol, and triglycerides. However, the major endpoints of heart attack, stroke, and death were not significantly different after two years between the niacin and the placebo group. 282 cases of heart attack, stroke, or death were seen in the niacin group, and 274 cases were seen in the placebo group. This was a very surprising finding as physicians around the world aimed to reduce heart disease risk by lowering risk factors such as high cholesterol. However, even with great improvements in the patient's cholesterol levels here, no benefits were seen to rates of death, cardiac, or neurological events. To further support this confusion, Garg in the American Journal of Medicine in 2017 conducted a systematic review that combined 13 clinical trials that totaled over 30,000 people and investigated niacin supplementation and the risk for heart disease or cardiovascular events. The average length of the niacin supplementation was 33 months. The doses of niacin varied greatly and were close to the 2,000 mg per day range. The authors concluded that niacin supplementation did not significantly improve rates of death, stroke, or heart attack. More importantly, this systematic review highlighted the negative side effects to the very high-dose niacin, as the niacin supplementation was associated with an increased risk of new onset or worsening diabetes. This high dose niacin also resulted in some skin, gastrointestinal, and musculoskeletal adverse effects. More specifically, those in the niacin group were at a 44% higher risk of developing diabetes versus the control groups. Skin flushing was the most common skin side effect. And in regard to the musculoskeletal side effects, this was indicated by higher myocytitis, which is muscle inflammation, and elevated creatine kinase. Boudica and colleagues in 2016 in the British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology reported that a reason why niacin did not necessarily lower the risk of death or cardiovascular events is because in their clinical population, extended-release niacin tablets did not improve antioxidant capacity and instead was associated with the production of AAPOAI antibodies. Now this is seen as a bad thing because this antibody production means it blocks the function of ApoAI. And we need ApoAI because it helps with the function of our good HDL cholesterol. The good HDL cholesterol essentially takes the fat away and from our systemic circulation and brings it to our organs to use it for energy. So it's thought to help lower the risk of clogged arteries or atherosclerosis. So if we're impairing that function, then we're essentially impairing you know, our ability to lower our risk for heart disease. So high-dose niacin increases good cholesterol, but at the same time, it makes the good cholesterol less functional. So you see, clinical research can be very complicated. You can think, oh, it increases good cholesterol, so it must be good. It must lower our risk for heart disease, but no. When you do the research of looking at the hard endpoints, such as heart attack, stroke, and death, High-dose niacin doesn't make a beneficial impact. So there's the rub. This is why long-term clinical trials looking at the hard endpoints of morbidity and mortality are key. Just because a risk factor such as cholesterol is improved does not necessarily mean that this will translate into a heart-protective effect. It's rather complicated, isn't it? But besides cardiovascular disease, niacin has also been implicated in skin health. In the British Journal of Dermatology in the year 2000, Tano and colleagues investigated the effect of niacin on skin cell metabolism in cell culture and on some measures of skin hydration in 12 men with dry skin. In the cell culture studies, they noted that addition of niacin changed the composition of the skin cells and increased ceramides. Now, ceramides are waxy-like fatty substances. In humans, they applied 2% niacinamide in a solution to one shin of the men and the control vehicle solution to the other shin. They noted an increase in ceramide levels in the niacin-treated skin and about a 25% reduction in water loss from the skin. However, these results, to me, seemed quite variable. Bissett has published a few clinical trials investigating 5% niacinamide application to the skin. For example, in the International Journal of Cosmetic Science in 2004 and in dermatologic surgery in 2006, 50 women applied a 5% niacinamide solution or control placebo lotion to their face every day for 12 weeks. The niacinamide solution was a little bit better, Than the control placebo lotion for fine lines and wrinkles, hyperpigmentation spots, texture, and red blotchiness. In addition, skin yellowing or sallowness versus the control was also improved. Niacin may have some important effects on skin health, but what we can say is that a severe niacin deficiency can lead to pellagra, which is hallmarked by severe skin issues. So adequate niacin intake can certainly help prevent this. Okay, so now that we have heard the important role of niacin and its conversion to NAD and how that is important for many of our metabolic pathways and longevity, how do we get it in our diet? Well, niacin in mature cereal grains is largely bound and thus is only about 30% available. Alkali treatment of the grain can increase the percentage absorbed. This was shown you know, back in the 80s by Carpenter and Lewin. Niacin in NAD form is present in animal products such as milk and meats. Niacin added during enrichment or fortification is in the free form and is highly bioavailable and easily absorbed by the intestines. Foods that contain niacin in the free form include beans and liver, for example. Now the recommended dietary allowance for niacin is 14 mg a day for women and 16 mg a day for men. Now It is known that in order to prevent pellagra, we need to get about 11 milligrams per day. You can get your daily amount of niacin with 12 grams of yeast spread. Nutritional yeast is also a great source, and was used to help cure pellagra about 100 years ago. It's also known that that particular form of nicotinamide riboside, which can increase NAD levels, is also found in yeast in small amounts. Now The daily amount of niacin can also be achieved with 75 grams of tuna, 100 grams of pork, 170 grams of chicken breast, 200 grams of liver, 250 grams of portobello mushrooms, or 110 grams of peanuts, for example. Now, If you want to combine some foods to get your daily amount of niacin, it can also be obtained by combining 1 ounce of hemp or chia seeds, one avocado, one cup of green peas, and one cup of brown rice. It appears that getting the daily amount of required niacin is a bit easier by comparison to riboflavin or thiamin that I covered in previous episodes because niacin seems to be quite widespread throughout a bunch of different foods. Now, niacin or NAD is very rich in animal meats, such as I said, in poultry, beef, pork, organ meats, and liver. But the question is, if you're gonna be taking it from supplements, can you take in too much niacin? Well, the answer is yes. There have been quite a few adverse effects reported in these clinical trials. Adverse effects such as nausea, vomiting, and signs and symptoms of liver toxicity have been observed at niacin intakes of 3,000 milligrams per day. This was reported, for example, by Rader in 1992. Flushing, which is a burning, itchy, tingling feeling with redness, can be accompanied by headaches and increased blood flow to the skin, which has been reported quite a bit, with doses even as low as 30 milligrams in supplements. Very high doses of 3 to 9 grams a day has resulted in some cases of liver toxicity and liver failure. 3 grams a day in clinical trials was also linked to glucose intolerance and a higher risk of developing diabetes or worsening of diabetes. Now the tolerable upper intake level was set at 35 milligrams a day because at 50 milligrams a day, 5 percent of individuals experience the side effect of flushing. So to ensure a dose in which the grand majority of people should not exhibit negative side effects, 35 milligrams was set. Now many vitamin supplements today contain niacin amounts above that tolerable upper intake level of 35 milligrams so do keep that in mind and if you do experience flushing perhaps it is because of a higher dose niacin in the supplement the side effect at this lower dose is flushing but the doses in the 1000 to 3000 milligram per day range are what we should be very aware of as this high of a dose is what was associated with those more severe side effects so that is a wrap my people scientist army this is episode 4 of our vitamin mini series, in which we talked all about vitamin B3 niacin. Niacin has a rich history and it took scientists decades to prove that a niacin deficiency was the cause of the disease pellagra. Niacin can improve cholesterol levels, but it does not necessarily improve heart disease or death risk. Niacin may be important for reducing the risk of dementia and for skin health and skin appearance. Niacin is very important as it is converted into NAD, which is required for hundreds of metabolic pathways in our body. NAD levels decline with age, and so it is being studied for its role in longevity. Eating a diet rich in niacin, and particularly the form nicotinamide riboside, known to be in cow's milk and yeast, seems to increase NAD levels in animals and in humans. Niacin is rich in yeast, animal meats, seeds, nuts, and legumes, such as beans and peas. Getting adequate niacin daily seems to be manageable, as it is available in many different types of foods. Now, I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. Next week, I will be taking the weekend off from posting a People Scientist podcast episode because of the American Thanksgiving holiday, but I will be posting another episode on the 8th of December. And I have some very exciting episodes that I can't wait for you all to hear lined up in which I interview some of the top experts in their field talking about depression, resilience, ketamine as a new treatment, and more. So make sure to tune in next time. If you don't follow me on social media, then please do, as I post extra tidbits of information throughout the week on the week's topic. I also will be posting some interesting information throughout the Thanksgiving holiday week even though I won't be posting a new episode. My social media handles are listed in the description box to this episode. So I hope you all have a great week. And if you live in the United States, then I hope you have a fantastic Thanksgiving weekend. And I will meet you back here the same time and the same place on December 8th. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discussed are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.